Welcome to the Remington Podcast, where we take a deep dive into all things ammunition. I'm your host, Audrey Mays. Today, we're expanding on the ballistics question that was asked in the previous Listener Questions podcast. I'm sitting down with ballistics engineer Jimmy Lawrence, and he's going to guide us through the ins and outs of internal, external, and terminal ballistics. Let's get into it. So I think the first thing that everyone wants to know is what exactly is ballistics? Right. We just scratched a little bit of it uh, during that last conversation, but at its most basic, the word ballistics is the science of measuring uh, basically the, the performance of our industry. So we break it out into three different types of ballistics and the specific ways you measure each of those different attributes. So we have uh, interior ballistics, exterior ballistics, and terminal ballistics. And each of those have their own different measurement systems and things we're looking for. Um, so just in a nutshell, interior ballistics is uh, chamber pressure. Everything from the hammer striking the firing pin and starting the primer's initiation, burning the propellant, and then sending the projectile down the barrel. Uh, once the bullet leaves the muzzle, it becomes exterior ballistics. So now your muzzle velocity has been established and it decays through the drag functions uh, driven by the ballistic coefficient. And that gives you your flight path, which is what we're interested in for shooting at longer ranges, of course. Uh, that also includes accuracy or dispersion. So your point of aim versus point of impact, uh, where you're gonna hold your scope, your iron sights, whatever the case may be. And once it hits the target, there's the terminal performance, the terminal ballistics. So that's gonna be things like bullet integrity, mush diameter, uh, which is expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, weight retention is the integrity portion of it, and penetration depth. And those are all measured in gelatin or you know any number of different uh, bullets and projectiles have different things we look for on the receiving end. Mm-hmm. And so we measure all of those at some point or another and that's what we're doing in the ballistics lab and trying to keep all of those things in spec or at least in line with what it's designed to do. Gotcha. So let's dive into these topics a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to interior interior ballistics, um, what are some factors that attribute to chamber pressure? So chamber pressure is what drives the whole uh, event. So what we're talking about, I like to call it a single-stroke internal combustion engine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've got your piston and your cylinder, and you've got your your burning of chemical potential energy. So you start with a primer that initiates the the burning of the propellant. You know, a lot of people think gunpowder blows up and the explosion makes pressure. Kind of, but it's all about time, right? So we have an initiation of the primer, which starts the propellant burning. And as that solid propellant burns, it converts into gases. And the expansion of those hot gases are what build up the chamber pressure inside the cartridge. So going all the way back to the very first black powder days, that chamber pressure was built across a different bore diameter and would push its uh, cannonball or grape shot, whatever the projectile was, down that bore. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing now in a modern rifle, except you're going to have any number of different components uh, tweaking and tuning how that pressure is driven down the barrel. So you have uh, like a bottleneck cartridge. You will have the same amount of pressure as a straight wall version of the same cartridge, but you'll get a higher velocity. So what we have to do is watch the peak pressure 
because that's what will uh, make the system fail is the peak pressure going too high in okay. this event. Mm -hmm. So within a certain uh, amount of time, usually measured in microseconds, you go from a primer initiation to your peak chamber pressure. And then as your projectile goes down the barrel, you'll see it decay off. And we make a curve uh, to measure that in pounds per square inch. So the chamber pressure varies from system to system in a, in a 12 gauge shotgun. You're usually running around 10 or 11,000 pounds per square inch. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you go to like a 308 Winchester, you'll be burning around uh, 60,000 pounds per square inch all to do the, the same thing, just at different performance levels. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and then the interior ballistics affect the exterior ballistics. Well, velocity is what sells. Mm -hmm. That's the energy that actually goes from here to there. Uh, so the great problem solver that is a firearm is so that you don't have to walk over there and hit something and put a hammer on it to make energy, right? Right. So to get from the muzzle to your target, you have to impart all of that velocity. And, uh, you know, the simple equation of force equals mass times acceleration, you have your bullet and you want to get it up to that velocity once it leaves the muzzle, it's not going to accelerate anymore. So all the force has to be imparted over the distance of that barrel. And the pressure on the heel of the bullet is what does that. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can think of the gases just pushing it like spitwad, right? Right. So you want to go from zero to 3,000 feet per second over the span of a 24-inch barrel. And now you have a, uh, an idea of how much pressure has to be on a 30-caliber heel. And uh, that's that's where those numbers come from. The, the the market target velocities come from what you can attain from each of these chamberings at that given chamber pressure. Okay, understood. And then you said you brought up ballistic coefficient. Mm -hmm. so can you explain to me what that is? Yeah, so on the exterior ballistic side of things, when the projectile's flying, mm -hmm. um, it's not a glider, it's more like a rock, right? Right. So it's going to do nothing but lose its velocity from the time it uncorks out of the muzzle until it actually hits the ground or the target. It's going to be losing its velocity due to wind resistance. So you can stick your hand out the window at 40 miles an hour and feel a little bit of pressure as you speed up to 80 and 85 or however fast you're willing to go. Mm -hmm. That pressure becomes harder and more tactile on your hand. So it's actually exponential of what that resistance is. And we call that the drag function. <clears throat> okay. So, you know, big time in rocket science and avionics, but uh, aeronautics. In ballistics, it matters a lot because of the velocities we're dealing with. So if you go from 2,000 feet a second to 3,000 feet a second, you shed that velocity even faster as a rate of distance. And... Uh, you can use a model to show that the cross-sectional area has to do with it, you know, how big your hand is. Mm -hmm. But then also, if you turn your hand on its edge, you'll notice there's a lot less resistance. So the way we can take a design of a bullet and then estimate what the uh, velocity decay will be on that projectile is, is driven back to one number called the ballistic coefficient. So we have a mathematical model that's behind the scenes in a lot of these ballistic solving softwares mm -hmm. where you have a theoretical model of what the airflow over that projectile is looking like. And then that calculates a estimated ballistic coefficient. So in the real world, what we do is we shoot and then you gather the velocity at at least two different points. 
So you can use radar and get the true decay of that projectile's velocity. Mm -hmm. Or you can measure, uh, say, 10 rounds at the muzzle and then 10 rounds at 50 yards and see what that drop in velocity was. And then you can see what the real-world ballistic coefficient was. And so we verify that. Uh, there's some software programs that can actually estimate from a 3D model what your BC should be. But it goes in the catalog, and that is actually public-facing information because there's a lot of people out there use that number for their ballistic solvers. Mm -hmm. uh, say you buy a box of our ammunition, you want to hit something at 800 yards. How high over the target do you need to hold it? And what will its velocity be when it gets there? Will the bullet still work? Gotcha. So. <clears throat> and, and different things affect that, one being the bullet size and the bullet shape, right? Length, shape, uh, diameter, uh, all of those physical attributes, mm -hmm. and then also density. Okay. So if you think of a tungsten rod, two inches long and an eighth inch around that weighs the same as a lead ball, they may have the exact same weight, but they're going to behave very differently. In flight. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, the shape of, you know, Leland mentioned the ogive design the other day. Um, that's one place where the BC comes from, uh, whether that's a tangent ogive or a secant ogive, you know, just the exact shape of that profile. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the big ones that we learned a long time ago in the industry was a boat tail <clears throat> right. can actually help a lot. And, and that's at the bottom of the bullet. At the heel of the bullet, mm -hmm. right. So if you take what used to be just a straight, flat base and you actually taper it in a little bit, it will fly a lot more reliably, not just from a, a BC standpoint, but then you also get a flatter trajectory for other reasons. Um, you also do still have a little bit of lift on the bullet and its resistance to dropping. Mm -hmm. It flies a little bit like a glider. Uh but the main thing is to try to keep that velocity from dying off too soon and get it as far downrange as you can. Get it as fast as possible, as far as possible. Right. Yeah. And obviously, the ballistic coefficient is important for the way that the bullet impacts the target at the end. Yes. So terminal performance comes back to how fast the thing was going when it got there. Right, right. No one cares about muzzle velocity if it loses all of its velocity within, say, 25 or 30 yards. Mm hmm so the big thing with modern technology and modern bullet designs is to make a velocity last so further downrange than it normally would. So you see a lot of things like when the 6.5 Creedmoor first came out, one of the marketing points that I had seen mentioned was beyond 300 yards, it is equivalent or better than 7mm Remington mag. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's a pretty strong statement to make. You start looking at the numbers and the BCs and the bullets that they're able to use because of that longer loaded length beyond the mouth of the case, they can actually maintain the velocity much further downrange. So your lethal kill that used to be done around 400 yards in terms of dead right there, right. you might stretch out another couple hundred yards just based on the shape of the bullet. So further away, same impact. Right. Yeah, which is important for hunters. So that's good to know. Um, and one thing that's really important, especially when hunting, maybe not so much target shooting, is weight retention. Mm -hmm. And how do we manipulate chamber pressure, ballistic coefficient, all that to get the best weight retention at the end? So weight retention comes back to uh, bullet design and its velocity and impact. Mm -hmm. So once we leave the muzzle and we've gotten to the target, we can go ahead and ignore everything behind that impact. You know, it, you've got it 
on target. You've hit what you needed to hit and you've made it there at whatever velocity you think is correct for that given design. So what we do is we shoot gelatin a lot. That's kind of the industry standard. And we look at uh, the penetration, which is going to tell you how quickly it dumped this energy versus how much momentum it still carried. Mm -hmm. We look at the weight retention that you just mentioned, which is of the original projectile mass. When we dig the the bullet out of that wound channel, how much of it is still there? Mm -hmm. So we measure that as a percentage. So 50% weight retention means you lost half of your bullet's mass into the wound cavity. Probably not very desirable. Right. But obviously, the faster it's going, the harder it's going to be to keep that projectile altogether. So you shoot something at 50 yards with a Magnum rifle, uh, you're going to have your task really set out for you to keep above 80% weight retention. You're going to be more like 50 and lower because you're going so fast into that tissue that the bullet just has a lot of energy to dissipate and it'll come apart more often than not in a conventional bullet. Yeah. Yeah. So the things we can do uh, from a design standpoint there are uh, bonded bullets Mm -hmm. where the core is actually basically soldered to the jacket and the lead and the copper are actually chemically bonded together so that the jacket and the lead move together and it kind of maintains it to where it doesn't break as easily and it doesn't roll back as fast, a little Mm -hmm. bit more controlled. Also, if you go through a bone, you're not going to damage the jacket in a way where it may strip off of that core. Mm -hmm. And the other more recent uh, solution to that problem is solid copper projectiles. Uh, So we've had a number of offerings for copper solids over the years, and they are almost always 100% weight retention on the receiving end. Mm Kind of, no matter what you do to them, they're going to stay in one piece. And is that because it's it's a monolithic bullet type, or is that because of copper specifically? No, it's all one piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so you can have a one-piece lead bullet mm-hmm. with a hollow point and drive it fast enough that the lead still comes apart. So dead soft copper or whatever the annealed characteristics of a solid copper, if you design the hollow point cavity and those pedals to come back, they're both uh, tough but soft to where they'll roll back and dissipate its energy with, you know, 2x expansion, mm-hmm. but then stop there. It won't lose a pedal because it's soft lead. It won't lose a piece of jacket because it's thin copper. Gotcha. Um, it's it's just a good, tough projectile when it's made that way. And we test for terminal ballistics velocity chamber pressure on every kind of cartridge that we load here at Remington, Right. If it makes sense to, yeah, mm-hmm. which is most of it. Right. So a uh, full metal jacket, uh, I will test accuracy. Mm-hmm. I will definitely always test interior ballistics, and we will test the accuracy to make sure a end user can hit a target at whatever range they need to. Uh, but I'm probably not going to shoot Jello with the FMJ anytime soon because all we're expecting to do with that bullet is to either put a hole in paper or make a gong ring. To uh, plank. Yeah, plank. Mm-hmm. Put a hole in a beer can, mm-hmm. you know, all those things. So 25 auto, full metal jacket. We're going to test its accuracy at 25 yards. We're going to check that the chamber pressure is within spec. We're going to make sure the velocity is at nominal. Uh, but from a design control standpoint, that's going to be about it. We're not going to worry about mush, downrange, penetration, mm-hmm. uh, all those things. Fast forward 
you know, up the chamberings and uses to a 300 Remington Ultra Mag 180 Scirocco. Mm-hmm. We're going to check all of those things. We're going to check mush at 100 yards. We'll probably go check mush at 300 yards. Uh, you know, any new design. I say Scirocco because that's one of the, the high-end, tougher ones. But we've got uh, precision long-range uh, core locked, core locked ultra bonded, all those things. Mm-hmm. So you you decide what you want that ammo to do, and then we have to go test the terminal performance at all of those different ranges. <clears throat> and um, I mean, even a um, a pellet in a shotgun shell has terminal ballistics, right? Yep. Um, there's not really a standard for that sort of testing. So for a rifle and handgun terminal ballistics. It's pretty cut and dried. You shoot a block of jello. You can measure how deep that bullet traveled. You can measure the wound cavity if you want to, any number of different things. Mm-hmm. But if you want to check the lethality of, say, bismuth versus lead or bismuth versus uh, steel, it's a little harder to go shoot a gel block and correlate that to a, a real-life end use of 100% dead goose versus uh, 80% dead goose, right? Right, right. So there's a few things we've done in the marketing side, you know, for your catalogs. We shoot a steel plate and show the momentum when it gets there. Mm-hmm. Um, you can shoot gelatin and measure the penetration uh, between tungsten and lead. Back when we were developing TSS, we did a lot of that. But it's it's harder to say, here's your one projectile. It has one job when it gets there. So most of the terminal performance we do on a shot shell is actually pattern testing. Okay. You wouldn't think of that as being uh, terminal, but it, it really is. So it's a combination of all three to get a good pattern. You have to have a good choke before you unload your payload into the air. The lead has to be nice and round and not deformed as it's flying through the air in the exterior ballistics to get there in a good shot string. And then, of course, it impacts all in one tight zone. Mm-hmm. So we shoot patterns on all of our shot shells. Okay. And then you have talked about this before, kind of when we did listener questions, but you brought it up earlier. You said that there's a standard. Where does this standard come from? A standard of testing? Yeah. Uh, the Sporting Arms and Ammunition uh, Manufacturers Institute is known as SAMI. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have heard of SAMI when they talk about reloading or, you know, max spec for loaded length or any number of things like that. That is our governing body of standards. And uh, just like any other uh, ANSI or SAE, any body of standards, they set forth the baseline of best practices on how to test and quantify or qualify the performance of your ammunition. Mm-hmm. So the Sammy Manual is a great big thick book that we all love to use. The Bible. <laughs> it's the Bible of how to how to make ammo. Well, they don't tell you how to make it. They tell you how to test it, and it keeps us all on an even playing field. Mm-hmm. So in each of the sections for uh, the different types of ammunition or firearms, it'll give you the the characteristics, which is the actual specifications. It'll outline some procedures, so it gives you a baseline of where to start on how to do all of this testing. And then it'll give you the equipment, the the most advisable piece of equipment to use to get all of this data. And what that does is it kind of keeps ammo company A from shooting all of their ammo through a 30-inch rifle barrel when the real world doesn't have that. Right. Now, if we make everybody shoot 30-06 in a 24-inch test barrel, there's a little bit of standardization there. So I can't just go randomly add a couple hundred feet a second to my muzzle velocity advertise, right? Mm-hmm. 
So almost everything we inspect and measure has a uh, a method to do it, a spec to target, and a piece of equipment to use for it that is outlined by Sammy. And what kind of equipment do we use to test, say, center fire rifle here at the plant here in Lone Oak? The basis of it is always the test barrel, the actual tube we fire through. So that can be something as simple as a uh, barreled action with a SAMI compliant chamber and bore, uh, which is actually pretty common to use for accuracy testing. Uh, but what we use mostly are what are called universal receivers. So we have a giant steel block. It's about this big. And it has a built-in breech block on the back with a, a lanyard-fired hammer, mm -hmm. not unlike a cannon. You just pull the string. Yep. Mm -hmm. And the front end of it has a threaded portion that receives a collar and a big nut that holds a test barrel in place. So every test barrel we use, again, from 25 and 32 auto all the way up to uh, 338 Remington Ultra Mag, all will go into the same universal receiver. So there's a firing pin, there's a hammer and a sear, and then a lanyard to fire that action. So whether we're measuring the velocity, the accuracy, or the chamber pressure, it's all from that same setup. So this whole system mounts to a pedestal that has giant screw adjustments to micro-adjust its impact at 100 yards. Mm -hmm. And then the test barrel will have a transducer mounted in the chamber to gather ch uh, chamber pressure data. Mm -hmm. And then a start screen and a stop screen. So when we pull that rope, if we're in an accuracy range, we can measure the chamber pressure as a function of time and actually generate that curve. Then we can gather the velocity, a start screen and a stop screen through a chronograph can calculate your uh, speed of that projectile. Right, right. And then it'll get where it's going and hit the paper and we can measure where it landed. So we get all three of those data points from one cartridge. You do that over and over 10 times, you average everything together and you've got some pretty good data all of a sudden. And how do you go about um, testing ammunition? What I'm trying to say is, how do you get samples from the ammunition that we send out to customers? We have uh, a lot of machines in this factory, and the ones that actually assemble that ammunition into its final cartridge we call loaders or loading machines. So each time a loader comes online and we shoot it to make sure it's good and in spec and it's going to be making good ammo, and we turn it on, uh, our gunners actually go out and sample that ammunition about twice a shift is the most common. Now, a, a piece of equipment that runs a higher rate, we may get it more often than that. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, once a loader comes online and is pressing ammunition into a buggy, uh, we'll sample it every four hours. And we pull that sample back into ballistics and fire it for velocity and pressure. And then we also take a sample and shoot it for what's called function and casualty which we take a production firearm and we make sure the ammunition functions there. And then we inspect all of the fired cases for what are called casualties, which is anything not desirable in your fired ammo. So split cases, misfires, uh, leaking primers, things like that. So that, that continual cadence of testing goes on throughout the entire production run on that loading equipment. So you not only fire through these test barrels, you also put it in an actual gun and shoot it at a target. Yep. yep. A uh, Remington 870 is a test test tool for us. Mm -hmm. And we have an armory full of different guns of different types and manufacturers so that we can get differing opinions on how that ammo performs. Uh, 
and that's an important part of ammunition design is to make sure it actually does work in a gun because I can make ammo that'll work excellent in a UR but may not even feed out of a magazine in, in the wrong type of firearm. So yep. we test that also. And that's that's why we test, right, for product performance. We want to give out the best product that we can make. Yeah, of course. And the whole basics of uh, the standard, uh, Sammy's coming up on 100 years old, actually, starting... In 1926 is when they decide to standardize a lot of these things, but it's about interchangeability ultimately. Mm -hmm. So before that, you had a lot of different ways to make ammo and firearm systems, and for the most part, they were built all under one umbrella. You can think of a military contract where I'm going to sell a pallet of rifles and a whole bunch of ammo to go with it. As long as that ammo and that rifle fit together, it's fine. But as you get more and more manufacturers making more standard cartridges, you get cartridge A into company B's rifle, and it may not even close the action on it, even though they thought it was the same thing. Mm -hmm. You have to standardize. So making sure that our ammunition fits in everything that is chambered for that exact head stamp is one of the most important parts of standardization. So you have to make sure like a 7 mil will fire out of a Remington gun, but also all the different types of seven mil guns out there yep yeah that's right and uh that's kind of one of the interesting parts of the development side that the r&d guys get to do is go buy as many different types of firearms as would be chambered in that cartridge and try to identify any problem child child guns out there Mm -hmm. so there may be a bolt action version of a cartridge that is supposed to be fired in an ar that all of a sudden is picky and you didn't think about trying it well, we have to go design to make sure that it's not picky anymore, mm-hmm. even though over here where its original design use was doing good, that's all into the function testing. So we've hit, you know, velocity and pressure and accuracy specs just fine. And then all of a sudden we get out there in the range and, well, it doesn't like to feed this bullet profile. Right. So now you got to go design around that as well. Mm-hmm. So that's why we have specifically pistol ammo and specifically revolver ammo. Mm-hmm. Right. So... And all this to say, you know, we want everything to be as safe as possible, right? That's also, that's another goal is, is product performance and safety in the firearm. Yeah, so performance is important. Obviously, that's what the customer's paying for. Right. They're, like I said, they're paying for the velocity and they have to be able to hit what they want to hit with that energy. But the product safety is probably the most important portion of why we as a ballistics lab exist. <clears throat> so you can go shoot just velocity only and have your performance right Mm -hmm. but that chamber pressure has to be within specification that the guns are designed to handle and beyond just chamber pressure there are any of number of other failures that can occur that we're looking for constantly uh you've seen i'm sure plenty of internet fails of things going wrong and a lot of times those are uh based around either old ammunition that hasn't been handled correctly, hand-loaded ammunition that was, uh, you know, someone had a mistake. But when we get to the point where we're looking for critical defects in in the factory-produced ammunition, we're talking about millions of rounds, and we're hunting one. Right. Because if I have a good-paying customer that has one trigger pull turn into a bad day, then we lost a customer, even if it was one in a million. Mm -hmm. So the defect rate, we were always trying to make sure it's as close to zero as we can possibly keep it. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the the bottom line of why we shoot in ballistics is to make sure that, yes, your averages are good, your velocity is what you expect out of it, 
the accuracy is appreciably usable, but that the ammo is safe every right. time you pull the trigger. Mm -hmm. And did I, uh, did I miss anything, Jimmy? No, that's in a nutshell what we do in ballistics. You know, a lot of people hear about it and say, hey, y'all get to shoot guns all day for fun and get paid for it. That sounds exciting. Well, <laughs> come on down and try it and you'll see there's a lot more that goes into it than meets the eye. A lot of math and science, more than, would you say it's a lot of trial and error or very calculated? Both. Trial and error is easier. Yeah. It takes less time. <laughs> you know, a lot of people ask questions about what primer will do on this versus that. I say, go make ammo, go shoot it, see what happens. Mm hmm and uh, we do a lot of that. Right. So. All for you guys there at home. There you have it, guys. Remington is on the rise. Like, comment, subscribe, and be sure to share this podcast with your hunting or shooting buddies. Be on the lookout for the next episode. You can find us anywhere you stream podcasts. And for more Remington content, follow us on all social media platforms at Remington1816. Interested in the full, unedited interview? Watch this podcast episode on YouTube. Our page is youtube.com slash at Remington. If you have any questions or have a topic you'd like us to talk about, feel free to email us at podcast at remington.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at remington.com. Thanks for listening.